0: Welcome back, patrons, to the Horus Heresy Book Club. I'm Lord Turner Oryk, and with me, as always, is the shield brother, Axel Wright. Now, before we start Galaxy and Flames, we have something very special for you. We'd like to welcome to the podcast, author of False Thoughts and the reason that I play Ultramarines, Mr. Graham McNeil.
1: <laughs> Good evening. How you doing, all guys? It's lovely to talk to you eventually.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've been super psyched for this, so thanks for coming on to talk to us. No, I mean, no, we am
1: looking forward to it as well.
2: This is kind of a big deal.
1: <laughs> yeah, for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, Graham, just for anyone who might not know the, the breadth of your, uh, your work, why don't you introduce yourself and all, all the various things you do?
1: <laughs> okay. Um, well, like, like I say, my name's Graham McNeil. Um, I'm here tonight because I've, I've primarily thus far written a whole bunch of novels for Games Workshop. In their Warhammer, their uh, 40k, their Time of Legends, Horus Heresy, and Siege of Terror lines. I've also written novels for Blizzard, uh, Starcraft 2 one, uh, Fantasy Flight Games, did some Arkham Horror ones for them. A uh, bunch of short stories for all kinds of people. And currently I'm employed uh, by Riot Games over here in Los Angeles, uh, working for League of Legends
2: quick quick sidebar I adore the the wedding crasher story for jinx that you wrote it's not relevant <laughs> to what we're talking about today but I just want to get that out there
1: <laughs> excellent no, that was a, that was a fun story to write I've had a anytime you get to write jinx is a good day
2: <laughs> all right so I mean I don't know how exactly we're gonna go into this but we've got a set of just like talking points questions kind of things and uh-huh. we're just we're pre- we're pretty loosey-goosey here but this gives us kind of like a direction so uh all right unless you've got Anything else, I'm just going to jump right into it. No, let's uh, kick this off. All right, well then first, just to get this out of the way, what question do you get asked like the most that we can just, just get right in, in front of?
1: Um, what's your pin number for your card? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, usually fair enough. Most of the time uh, when I stop, talk to people at events or signings and stuff like that, um, usually they want to know... Uh, either is there a new Ultramarines book coming out soon, yeah. and if so, when? Or how many books are there going to be in the Horus Heresy? I mean, that was that was back before uh, the Heresy ended, as as such, you know, in terms of being, you know, not the Siege of Terra side of things. So, how many books are in the Horus Heresy, and when is there going to be a new Ultramarines story? Out uh, were usually the ones I get asked the most.
2: So people essentially wanting inside info on what's coming out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they just like to. I think they, you know, like to know, you know, like how badly am I going to wreck their bank balance by them wanting to get a new <laughs> arm soon.
2: You know, as someone who uh, I've been into Warhammer for a few years, I've only gotten into the models like a month ago. I oh. can understand that. Ah, so, okay, well, <laughs> welcome to the club. Yeah, especially because yeah, no. uh, I'm I'm collecting orcs and I'm already up to like fifty models. So <laughs>
1: excellent. No, it's an army. It's an army I've not yet collected. Uh, you know, we're, I'm playing a lot of kill team just now with my son Evan, and he he's read the the, the current orc codex, and he is, you know, it, you could not think of a better fit for person and army than him and orcs. So I suspect we'll be collecting and painting them pretty soon.
2: Awesome.
0: All right. Ulrich, you have a question. Yeah, uh, what sort of directions or limitations did Games Workshop or, and Black Library give you when you got handed, hey, you get to do the second book in this opening trilogy?
1: Uh, it wasn't really, I mean, the thing is, we, we didn't plan these books out in isolation. You know, when we were, when we first gathered uh, a ton of the, the authors and editors and artists and uh, the high hegens of Games Workshop at the time, we, you know, we were looking at the the series as a whole to begin with, and then we, you know, we were looking to pick out, you know, the types of characters, the archetypes we'd want to hit, the themes, the the story types, and so on that we'd like to see within this. So, you know, we even before we, you know, got into the first book, we we had a good idea of the kind of feel and tone that we wanted to hit, and all these things. Cause, you know, we wanted the readers to pretty much pick up a book in the Horus Heresy and within the first 10 pages or so, we wanted them to feel that they were reading something very different to a, a 40K novel that they wouldn't feel like, I don't know, when is this? Is this a 40K or 40? you should know instantly from the tone and the feel of what you're reading, that this is a Horus Heresy book. So that was something we all kind of arrived at together. And then when, you know, after the first initial kickoff meeting uh, we all got we got together to plan out. Okay, what's the arc of the three books? You know, where do we, where do we want the third book? You know, the opening trilogy. Where does that have to? Where does that end? Um, and basically, you know, we came to the point of well, okay, it's pretty much Estevan. It's got to end at, at one of those sections. Have a big, you know, big scrap at the end of that. So once, you know, we'd kind of figured out what the arc of the three books was. You know, with the story you've got to tell. You know, okay, I, I need to have x amount of tentpole moments in it that i want to see there's certain bits of the lore that you know happen at this point so for example like in false gods i knew we had to have uh the moons of davin seen on there where horus you know falls for the first time and and is you know mm. taken to the serpent lodges to be healed you know that had to be in there um we needed whole bunch of things that were seeded in the first book and a whole bunch of things that needed to be ready and available to be pulled forward into the third book so you know within the structure of things that you knew you had to have you were pretty much given a a free hand because one of the one of the things that black library have always been very very good at is you know giving giving the writers their voice letting them tell the story that they want to tell, and you know, you you play obviously you play, you colour inside the lines in terms of the IP. You know, orcs are green, space marines are <laughs> <simply> tall, armored <laughs> killing machines. But within within the you know the broadest parameters of what you have to play within, you're you're they're, you're given more or less a free hand to tell just a cool story that serves the IP. You know, serves you as the writer and serves the reader and, make sure that everybody has a good time along the way so things like you know i I had to have magnus turning up uh in horus's kind of vision quest thing i had to have him fall with the poison blade and so on and i I carried on the anathema uh that dan had introduced in horus rising um but beyond that you know things like the the fight against the, the technocracy at the end of the book that was you know i i came up with that for the for the book for you know, a number of reasons. I you know I wanted to use a lot of things and the events that happen in False Gods and the characterizations that you see as uh, foreshadowing moments that would play out further in the in the storyline. But yeah, you were you're as long as you, you as long as we hit this up, the sort of tentpole moments that we'd agreed on beforehand, knowing yeah that's a thing that we need to have in there. This the the readers and the lore and the established history that we know of the Horus Heresy needs this point in it. But aside from that. It, it was up to the reader uh, the writer sorry to figure out the best way to tell the most engaging and emotional story you could
2: you, you know we we both love uh false gods i only read it for the first time you know recently or oh, a number wow. of times but i'm i'm I, i'm really glad to hear that because that one of the reasons why I, you know i asked that question is because this is something as you estab- as you said with an established lore this is not just any part of the essential this is like one of the three biggest things to happen in the established stores. I was curious how much uh, leeway you were given. I've always found in, in my experience that uh, content creators, authors, creative people create better generally the more of the freedom they're, yeah. they're given. So that's why I was, I was curious. I, I
1: <laughs> 100% agree because I'm very much of the opinion of trust your creatives and they will return that trust tenfold by giving you their best work.
2: Can I ask you about a specific uh, scene? I'm just curious because when me Absolutely. and Auric talked about yeah, Arx had time to think about this, but the scene that we literally, because we, we recorded, we would do two chapters at a time and we would do a recording to talk about it and talk about how we're feeling. And even after it happened, we kept coming back to the Astartes massacre of, yeah. of, of people on the, when they bring and Horus I, back. Yeah, exactly, and the fact that we kept coming back to it to talk about it, to talk about like what it meant and what sort of philo- philosophical conversations we could have about it, and Carcassi's decisions, and to me that just struck me as like a very impressive thing that we could just keep on wanting to talk about its implications mm. and what it meant, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean that that's that was a that was a scene that kind of came out in the writing of it because. It was one of the scenes that I, I didn't know was going to be in the book. When you know, when you outline, when I outlined it and figured out, okay, this is roughly the structure. Here's the big beats and how we're going to weave. What characters do we have that can weave in and out of those sort of things? Because it's a they're kind of a mix of plot driven and character driven. Some of these the earlier books where we were, you know, there were certain moments that had to happen. And one of the moments I wanted to put in the book that felt emotional was to. Uh, re- really reveal what up to this point had been hidden in the sense of the Astartes had always been looked upon as these infallible warriors who could never die or d- didn't die very regularly and were godlike above humans. Even as the Primarch was godlike above them, and to s- to see them in a moment of I don't want to, I almost don't want to use the word panic, but that's kind of what it was when they were when they were so afraid. That Horus was going to die it kind of stripped them of any kind of Astartes uh, what's the word is that sort of resolve and that stoicism that they have in the face of they're trained to fight the most terrifying things in the galaxy you know the, the whole you know the and they shall know no fear isn't literally true but they're trained to deal and push through it whereas this moment it was like all the conditioning was stripped away from them and they were just Revealed as fallible, which is one thing I I wanted the remembrancer characters to take away from that moment and realize that A, they can be fallible, you know, they can fall if the right levers and stimulus are applied to them. And that we as mortals are kind of less than to them. That if they want to get to a place and we are standing in their way... You best get out of their way. Uh, So it was was (laughs) more to seed in some ideas that might not immediately come to fruit. Uh, Because that was something, I mean, uh, going back to our previous question, Dan and I had many, 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 many conversations over the course of uh, the writing of these books where, you know, one of us would, you know, we would throw balls up in the air and say, I've got this thing to do. Can you knock that one down for me or set that up? For, in in most cases, oh. it was like I, I would ask Dan, could you set a thing up for me? Could you have a character walk through this scene and say their name and then walk out again and, or establish that this item exists or whatever it was? And Dan would be like, okay, I want to do this thing, but it's not going to be paying off my book. So can you have a moment where this happens so that it, it it feels like it's all organically happening at the right pace, that the the timing feels right for these events to be foreshadowed and then to take place and so on. So that, that moment was... The Astartes riot, as I used to call it all the time, was literally to seed in ideas that might not necessarily play... that don't actually play out until at least the third book and possibly slightly later than that, is that the Astartes... Are not one hundred percent trustworthy, and that with the right levers you can break anything.
2: I love hearing about the like collaborative effort going into that. It's mm-hmm. just, it makes a lot of sense, and it's really nice to hear. Uh, so I'm, I'm gonna, tr- we're gonna try to kind of alternate between questions related directly to false gods and more like general authorial kind of questions. Sure, so, it sounds good. Yeah, so, like, I was curious, all right, um, I, I read a, a little bit that, you know, you got into writing uh, from what I could see online from, like, a, a white dwarf ad, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, and um, right. with, I find that with most writers, when you read about them, there's usually, like, a, uh, a genesis moment, a specific book or a franchise or something that gets them into the idea of writing so i'm curious if you could share with us what you might call your journey to being an author or at least any points of it you find important
1: yeah i mean there's there's a few moments that stick out for me i mean the the advert uh in white dwarf was certainly the the journey the beginning of the journey of me joining games workshop but i'd been writing for years and years before that um i mean i think the I don't. I mean, I've always loved stories. I mean, I grew up in a house that was filled with books from you know top to bottom, books everywhere. My mum and dad were and remain big, big readers, so I was always surrounded by the written word. And just you know, I I was like, okay, I want I want to do some of this as well. And uh, you know, I read loads of. I read you know when I was very young, I read comics called the the Beano and the Dandy, uh, and then I, I later my gran bought me a comic one time because she's always oh, got a picture of a dinosaur in the front that'll be educational
0: <laughs> and it was, uh,
1: it was an issue of 2000 AD uh, and the story of the dinosaur and it was flesh about time travelers who go back to the age of the dinosaurs to hunt them to, for food <laughs> and so on I was like I read this thing I was like
0: holy crap this is amazing
1: <laughs> judge Dredd was in it rogue trooper was in it wow uh, you know all you know the Robo Hunter was in it. There's all sorts of just stories that just blew my little, I don't know, 10, 11-year-old mind at the time. And I was like, oh, this is the best thing ever, science fiction and fantasy. So I was, you know, I kind of got into it at that point and And, you know, I, I read The Hobbit at some point in Lord of the Rings when I was younger. I don't remember exactly when. Um, and I, I enjoyed them, but they weren't huge catalysts at the time. Um I mean, I've, I've Doctor Who books. I read a lot of the Doctor Who tie-in novels when I was younger, and like in primary elementary school, and I loved them. And I used to write a whole bunch of like Doctor Who fanfic stories when I was in like I don't know sixth, seventh grade or whatever it was. Because um, I, I mean, there's a story my my mum never tires of telling people. Like when I was like very young, uh, you know, so like ages to be strapped in a car seat. In the back of their car kind of young mm-hmm. and my mother was strapping in and I sort of turned to look turned to look at her and said mother when <laughs> I grew up I'm either going to be a writer or a bin man <laughs> just, so there's like right um okay sure you know bin men will probably make more money but so but great <laughs>
2: <laughs> but
1: as far as actual writing goes I mean these were all sort of formative moments you know like I I got a copy of The Warlock of Firetop Mountain when I was about 12, which, you know, made a lasting impact on me. But as far as actual writing goes, I remember I read a pair of books, a a duology, the the War of Powers books uh, by Robert E. Vardaman and uh, Victor Milan. And they were were great. They were like sort of high fantasy, you know, kind of tropey, but in a great way. It was full of, you know beautiful good princesses who had blonde hair and snarky evil princesses sisters who had dark hair and all you know the, everything was fairly tropey but it had it knew that and had a great deal of fun with it and they were fantastic books I loved them uh, so mm. when I read them I put them aside and then uh, later on not long after that I found uh, a book by one of them and I you know I don't remember which one it was but one of them had written a book on their own uh, as a solo thing I mean I you know, and I read it, and it was kind of an Arabian Nightsy kind of thing. And I got to the end of it and thought, that was absolute garbage. What the <laughs> hell is this? I, 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 Jesus, I could do better than this. And it really, it literally was, if there had been a light bulb anywhere near me, it would have popped on, because I had to sort of take a sort of step back and go, okay, okay, if you think you could do better than that, Put your money where your mouth is. So, write a book. I was like, okay, well, I don't need to do that then. So, I got my my dad got me like an old typewriter from his, his work, um, brought it home, and I you know learned to learned to type on that. Wrote out you know a bunch of little sort of mini mini stories where I was you know like figuring out what was good, what wasn't, and how to do this and how to do that. Uh, and I was reading a lot of David Gemmell. At the time, and you know, I'm a huge fan of Gamel, and his his books have shaped, you know, my writing more than probably any other I could think of. Um, and I wanted to write a, a David Gamel novel, so I wrote, I don't know, several hundred pages of this of a novel called Blood Magic, uh, on the typewriter when I was like, I don't know, 15 maybe or something like that. Uh, and I've still got it. I was, I was I had dug it out to show my kids the other day there, and I was flicking through some of the pages and going.
0: Yeah, it's all right actually. It's you know, not too shabby.
1: This, this maybe this could be resurrected and so on. But um, so yeah, it was, it was reading a reading a book that I didn't like, and going, I could do better than that, and f- having a moment of thinking, okay, well let's give it a try. And that I, that's really the moment when I thought I'm going to try and do this. But it was, it was always just a hobby. You know, it was always something I loved doing. And I, you know, I, I liked writing stories. I liked telling stories. I liked. Uh, playing D&D you know and I was always the I was always the DM because they got to tell the story and I, I loved telling stories that I could see people were enjoying you know so that that was always the thing that I loved the most that's the, still the thing I loved the most about it is telling a story that you know hopefully people can enjoy and maybe get something out of beyond the enjoyment out of it but you know that's that's pretty much where it started and it just it never really stopped after that it was only really when you know, I, I applied to Games Workshop, I realized that actually, yeah, this, this could actually make me a living here. I could, I could write and get paid for it. That'd be, that'd be awesome.
2: <laughs> I, I do think it's wonderful that the light bulb moment was a challenge moment. Yes. <laughs> Something about that is, is great. Oh.
1: Yeah, I'd always enjoyed it, but I never thought to actually the idea of actually doing it myself as a thing hadn't actually occurred to me until I'd seen this, That I thought, I don't like this. I, I want to do better than it.
2: Oh, so, we can look forward to Blood Magic by Graham McNeil sometime? <laughs> yeah,
1: or no. I mean, I'd need, I, you know, if I get 200 pages in it and go, actually, no, this is garbage. <laughs> Maybe not, but <laughs> the, the little snippet I read, you know, was very obviously the product of a 15 year old boy's mind. Um, but I think the basics of it were, are not too shabby. All
0: right, Oric. So, when I first picked up. Uh, Horus Rising. My immediate thing was, wait, I'm gonna get to rewrite prime Primarchs. This wasn't something that existed in 40k at the time. And then I got, it's like, okay, that was really cool. Dorm was really cool. And then I got to False Gods, like, oh wait, this is the guy that wrote my, the Ultramarines series. So that means Gilman's gonna pop in here. Oh, I'm really excited for that. <laughs> and he never shows up, which unfortunate. But I still remember every time a Primarch came in, it was like, oh my god, I get to see what a Primarch is like. That this Primarch is like what is it like writing for characters that didn't exist before this? Like they did, but they had never existed in yeah. the fiction.
1: Yeah. In, yeah, They'd always existed. And certainly, you know, you'd read them in codexes and little, you know, box outs of color text and so on. And it's, it's, always, it's always challenging trying to write a character who's so much better than everybody else at pretty much everything um, without them turning into like an, an arrogant jerk So, you know, I think it's the problem, like, you know, like with Tolkien's elves who are like effortlessly better at everything and you just hate them for that. Um, So, you want, you know, you wanted them, we wanted them to be super heroic. You know, you wanted them to feel like these are like gods walking amongst us because this is, you know, this is in 40k terms, this is a a legendary epoch that is passed into memory and folktale and so on. So, these, you know, this is like the, the you know, the people of our age telling stories of Apollo and Artemis and so on, these are mythic beings, so you wanted to imbue them with something of that um, largely in by what they did, because you know, you, you can write that this man this, this Primarch was awesome and everybody loved him, it's like, sure, okay, but, but why? <laughs> you know, so we wanted to show them doing impossible things, incredible things but also have them with that a little bit of a a little bit of a glint in their eye. Uh, and, and Dan did that like phenomenally well in uh, Horace, Ri- <clears throat> pardon me, Horace rising. You know, he made Horace somebody you loved. And that was something that took me by surprise as much as anybody. When I first read the manuscript, because I, I was reading going, I love this guy. I, I think he's brilliant. Yeah, and yeah. You have to, you have to remind yourself because like Horace has become such a a byword for treachery and betrayal and, falling your lot in with chaos that we, ourselves included, we forgot that he was the emperor's best and brightest son. He was his right-hand man for, you know, decades of the, the great crusade. They fought back to back forever, father and son. You know, he was entrusted with the armies of the emperor. This guy was amazing and you had to have an amazing force of personality to be able to command an army of that scale so i mean that was one of the hardest things for me to do and i'm I'm sure we'll talk about this later was to get horus from where we left him at the end of horus rising as this this leader you would follow into hell and back who loved his sons and was in turn loved by them and turn him to the dark side you know Mm. and you know without falling into the the Anakin Skywalker trap of you know making it just like one quick step and it was all over um so it's a, it's a it's a balancing act of making them like able to do incredible things while also making them like good leaders where you know they they love and care about their soldiers uh, and having a little bit of a a wink in their eye where they know like we are so much better than everybody around us but we're still good people. You know, we're, we embody a good quality in a, in, pers- in a human being. But, you know, like it's, it's every strength taken too far can become a weakness. And that's ultimately, you know, a factor in what dooms them, that they, they are specialists in one kind of emotional range, but they're blind to, to certain others, which is, you know, I mean, the heresy is at its core is a tragedy, you mm-hmm, know it's mm-hmm. the oh yeah it's the, it's the heroes the hero undone by the flaw that they can't see in themselves you know like you know for macbeth you've got that ambition and but you don't see the jealousy you know all the all the great tragic figures have a, a flaw that they're blind to but we as the audience can see it but they can't at least they can't until it's too late uh, and i think that's always the thing that's interesting about them that we can look at somebody like Angron or Fulgrim and we can see what's going to doom them. But at the beginning of their stories, it feels like it's a plus until it goes just that little bit too far and tips them off into, you know, a very bad place.
0: Yeah, you no, know, I was, I was hmm. curious if it was a little bit intimidating finishing uh, Horus rising and going, wow, I have to make this guy not only fall, but I have to make you hate him now. After you had this whole book, of, was, oh, isn't he so wonderful and great? He's your best friend.
1: <laughs> it we was,
0: talked about that. It's like, oh, you go from loving Horace to, to oh no, him. I have to hate him now. Well, are we? Do that.
2: We have a we have a one watcher who's a friend of ours. Who so like I said, I only just read this for the first time, but I've at least been into Warhammer lore for the last like four or five years. But our our buddy Chris, we are introducing him to Warhammer. So this is like brand new to him entirely and he would tell us he got to the end of false gods and he said that he thought it was really like really interesting how the horus at the end of false gods is almost unrecognizable as horus but that you make sense the 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 path to get there you know
1: yeah absolutely i mean uh, change is what makes characters interesting and the horus at the end of false gods absolutely should not be the same As the one that you end Horus Rising with but yeah to to go back a second it was I mean following up Dan Abnett is hard at the best of times (laughs) following up Dan Abnett when he is on fire is even worse (laughs) because you know like Horus Rising was one of the most exciting books I've ever read you know and not not even just like exciting as in full of action and so on but just the things i was reading were like i have never read anything like this just the the tone the feel seeing these characters acting the way they do seeing these kinds of characters cuz I, I i remember reading the uh the, the 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 speech the the speech patterns they had the conversations they were having and at first my brain just couldn't wrap wrap itself around them i was reading them going this this is no no this is weird this is all wrong you know space means don't talk like this this is not right no Dan's he's taking this too far they they don't <laughs> talk like this and then there was a moment when I I just you know I, I think I, I in my head I was saying oh no they don't talk like this in forty k and it suddenly there was like a click and I was like of course they don't because this isn't forty k this is the space moons talk and behave the way they do in forty k because of what happened in thirty k They... You know, the, the, the strictures became ever tighter, the discipline and the dogma and 10,000 years of the stultifying, you know, metastasis of the, the the Imperium has led them to be this way. But here, this is a time of hope, this is a time of optimism, this is a time of we can, we can do this and we can do it because of our brotherhood, because of our friendships, because of all the ties that bind us and make us amazing people of course they're not going to speak like Fort k marines. And so it was, it was such a hugely exciting book to read. So, yeah, following up that was hard. Following up that was hard. But luckily, you know, Dan had done a great job in laying the groundwork for all of us, uh, but especially me into this book. And he was a, a, a tremendous, tremendously generous companion on the writing road, because any time I, I needed, you know, some... Either reassurance or hey, I've got this idea here. What do you think? Is is that good? Does that feel right? And he was always very generous of his time to help. You know, with a an encouraging word or a hey, actually, made yeah, that's a great idea. But have you thought about this? And he would just give it this little twist of an angle, and you're like, oh, that's it. That's why this bit works or not, and what have you. So it was it was great. You know, like follow, it was very intimidating following that up, uh, following Horus Rising, but he. Dan helped me out a lot of the way, just with propping me up when I was like, I don't know what I'm doing in this bit, or <laughs> does this feel right? So, yeah, that's it, that's the one, or what have you. Or, oh, that's great, I didn't think of that, but that makes this work here, bang, 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 and so on. So, yeah, it was, it was again, a very collaborative process.
2: Yeah, it is, it is funny, because so many times over these two books in our book club, Ulrich and I talked about, and Chris, our buddy, mentioned that these are – Space Marines are an interesting fictional construct in that it's very easy from an outside perspective, as often happens, to write them off as uh, stiff, for lack of a better term. But these books do such boring, a good job of... I was thrown around a lot. I was, okay, yeah, but these books do such a good job of making them human and humanizing them. I yeah. remember I remember, uh, Tori Gadden specifically, is one of my yeah, favorite characters in fiction at this point. <laughs> so, he, was fun, he was such
1: fun to write,
2: yeah. Okay, okay so... Uh you've written for uh, a number of different franchises as you established the first. I'm just I'm just curious what you find personally are the most interesting differences in writing for something like 40K versus AOS versus League of Legends and versus Arkham Horror. Like what's unique about each of those kind of things?
1: Uh I mean they're all they're all very different. I mean I I've I've not written for Age of Sigmar yet. Wow. Um, I think I'd quite like to at some point. I mean the IP it was just getting started, or oh, they were just about to launch Age of Sigmar when I left for the US. Um, so I didn't really have this sort of space. Cause, you know, we're moving to a new country, new job, and everything. So I didn't really have time to process all. Plus, I was in the middle of a book at the time anyway. It was in the middle of writing uh, the Crimson King at the time. But um, yeah, I mean, they all they've, got all they've got very different feels, and it's good to to jump between uh different franchises cuz it's it's you know you engage different muscles in your brain your creative mind works in different ways whether it's looking at 4K or arkham horror and uh k you know like for for example writing the time of legends books the sigmar novels they were the tone of them was a very kind of sweeping epic Conan-esque kind of vibe to them, so you wanted to bring in that sense of just even what over was the, over the horizon was unknown and unknowable and should be feared. The the sense of discovery and exploration of a, a new world, because you know, to the people in the old world back in the time of legends days, you know the, what you knew was the, the walls of your settlement or how far you could walk in the daylight away from your stockade sort of thing. So that was a very kind of the world, you know, the world is dark and full of terrors kind of vibe. Whereas Fort mm. k you, you're playing into that dogmatic, uh, dark ages, medieval feel where you want people to feel like they're almost like wrapped in chains, that this is a, you know, this is a very metropolis vibe and, you know, the whatever happens, you will not be missed kind of thing. Mm. Um, I mean, as we talked about earlier on, Heresy has that, Certainly in the earlier books, anyway, the heresy had very much that sense of a golden age where anything was possible and everything that we dream of and desire is just there. I can see it, I can smell it, and we can have it. We can have the utopia that we've always dreamed of. So, you know, it's those are like like thematic mission statements, if you will, that, you, you know, if you keep them in the forefront of your brain when you're reading them or, or writing them, rather... And yeah, and even when you're reading them, then that helps. Kind of, it sets your your mind and your your fingers on a certain path that you're wanting to take the reader down. In terms of the kinds of dialogue, the kind of descriptions, everything fits to that theme. You know, like, and and that helps establish a mood, and it it sets the reader leaning a certain way, which is which is great because when you want to like whip the rug out from under them, you can because they'll mm. have. That are locked into this path of this is gothic and brooding, and the only light is the fires of humanity's destruction. And then you can do something really funny, and it's like, whoa, didn't see that coming, or whatever. You can surprise the reader, and surprise is what drives the reader through a book. You know that I must know what happens next because I don't know what happens next. Um, with Arkham Horror, that was that was a very different one because I part of the brief on that was to be Sort of in the mold of Lovecraft's style while still maintaining a balance between this sort of pulpy, you know, and pulpy noirish feel to them because ultimately, you know, the thing where the thing that I struggled with certainly in the first book in the Arkham Horror Trilogy was the kind of tone because I, I very much like the cosmic horror aspect of Lovecraft, the, the you know, we are dust on a tiny speck of blue in the cosmos and are meaningless to that in the grand scale of things you know the <clears throat> you know a lot of Ed lovecraft's early writings were very much you know like the professors climbing the hill with the sacred book and banishing the demon kind of thing whereas the later stuff was very much the the, the cosmic horror of our humanity's insignificance angle sort of thing so mm-hmm. i i very much like that so i tr- I was playing that angle in the first book in the trilogy but the the folk at fantasy flight and my editor rightly were pulling me back from that a little saying you know like you know this is uh this is an arkham horror you know the board game and uh, this is an arkham horror and tie-in and arkham horror very much as that you know pulpy gangster noir movie feel where you can beat the bad guys you know you can Drive up to the to Yog Sothoth and blast him in the face with a machine gun. And, you know, throw some dynamite at him and boom, the gate is closed and hurrah, you win home in time for tea and medals. Uh-huh. So that was that was something that I kind of not fought against, but it was like my my inclination was to very much go the the darker route. And they were like, no, 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 remember this is based on our game where you you can win. All right, okay. But then you know, the second and third books kind of took a more you know, they they gave me much more free hand to sort of go to the dreamland, bring that <clears throat> that cosmic horror in, but still, obviously, with yes, we can. You know, we're having a dogfight in the sky against flying polyps with machine guns, which is kind of fun. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's great to to venture into each of these different tones and feels because it, it's great for you as a writer because you're not stuck in the same uh, genre. Which no matter how much you love it, and I love every single one of these ones you do it for four or five books, whatever, you think, I just really want to change. I don't I don't want to maybe want to write another Space Marines bolter, chainsaw tastic action. I want to write 1920s with somebody trying to get into a speakeasy or a, I want to write orcs attacking the village, you know, with arrows and stuff like this. So each one of them gives you a nice sort of palate cleanse and it means when you go back to the, the Space Marines or the fantasy or the 1920s, you're excited for it, you're hungry for it, because you've missed it and you want to do it again. So I love just hopping back between, between genres, between IPs um, and between story lengths, you know, like going from a novel to a short story, to a novella, to a, like a longer a novelette sort of short story is great, because again, they all require sort of a different set of storytelling muscles. Because uh, in a short story, you've got you've got much less time to be. Uh, <laughs> apologies for the dogs. You've it's got right. to, you've got much less time to tell your stories. So you've got to be a lot more economical with your words, which, you know, coming from me, I can I can feel the hypocrisy bubbling up. <laughs> me, I am I am not known for the brevity of my stories, so to say. Um, but yeah, but when you when you've got a novel, you've got a lot more space to play with, which doesn't mean you can be too indulgent with word counts but you can take a bit longer in your story whereas a short story you've, it's it's very much get in tell your story and get out and do it in the most sort of economical way you can so I, I, you know hopping between genres and lengths is just a great way to keep yourself fresh
2: it's it's funny because that that description. What one of the first things popped in my head is I just mean your current job probably works great for you considering that going from one fictional country in league to another is basically jumping into completely different genres.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, <laughs> and different, different character. I mean, leagues IP when we first started it. When I first joined, I should say rather, um, it was it was a, a mishmash of very different genres. You classic high fantasy you had steampunk you had blends of mythologies and archetypes from all kinds of places so one of the first things that i did when i was uh when i joined riot was, was i was part of the world building team and part of our job there was to bring all that into some sense of cohesiveness to f- figure out ways where you could believe that this was an, this was a world that worked so that this was a world that functionally could exist in the sense of you know you could have this medieval high fantasy culture of knights and castles over here and in the middle there was this city that had access to essentially like lasers and steam power and how how would these places work together how would they realistically you know as as far as the fantasy concept goes how would they actually coexist in the same world and have you not go huh
2: what
0: (laughs) that
1: that doesn't how does that make sense um, and that was great because I, I, that's one of the things I love doing is taking sort of disparate elements of story, character, plot, whatever, and f- figuring out a way to make it work. Uh, and, yeah, and, and certainly League encompasses such a wide variety of of, of archetypes, of characters, of styles, of mythologies, and it blends together in a way that you, can, if you want to tell sort of slightly... Anime, manga esque kind of stories there are characters there for that. If you want to tell gritty, grim, dark stuff, there are characters for that. Noble, heroic people struggling against the odds for freedom and noble ideals. Yep, check. We've got that too.
2: Damasius. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So there's there's something there's what I love about the league's IP is that there's something for everybody. There, you know, whatever kind of fantasy you like, you'll be able to find something there that you know appeals to you and characters there you can find something relatable with no matter who or what or whatever you're into or whatever you like or whoever you are there'll be something there that you can enjoy and identify with which is something i think is laudable
2: yeah uh yeah i certainly agree i mean probably the reason i still play league but i I also want to say because you were talking talking about the arkham thing and a while back Arkham and i actually had a um with this conversation this episode where we were talking about eldritch horror in general and Mm. how and the pitfalls that it can fall into and how it works and when it doesn't work. And one of the things I remember that I always uh, kind of get on is that Eldritch Horror, is, I think, inherently feels a lot harder to write than a lot of other kind of horror because of the mm-hmm. the unknowableness of it. So I can I can very easily imagine the uh, the pushback you talk about with, like, if you're trying to write cosmic Eldritch Horror, it, it does have an inherent kind of, like, difficulty with... Uh, being a boss that you can be (laughs) yeah i get that yeah
1: exactly and what i mean what lovecraft talked about in terms of that you know like the opening i think it's the opening of the story the call of cthulhu when he talks about uh he thinks it'll be science that ultimately drives us mad or destroys us is like you know he needs like i don't mean by it's be science that destroys us not by the weapons they will create or the technologies they will devise but It'll be by the unlocking of the fact that we are nothing; we mean nothing in the context of this universe. All the, the meaning that we think we have and attribute to our species, doesn't exist. And I think that was certainly horrifying. That was, was more—it's <laughs> a, a horrifying thought in general. But I think it was yeah. more horrifying to the people of the nineteen twenties and so on because science really was at the at its not in its infancy, but it was certainly. It was beginning to prise open the door, and there were so many things about space and the cosmos that were they didn't know. Whereas I think these days we feel we know a lot more. Like we, hey, we can, we know when the Big Bang happened. We know how planets are formed. We know galaxies and so on. We can measure time and space. But there, you know, and that that you know, we are of a sort of a species. We've got that sort of Dunning Kruger effect. Like we, we think mm. we know it all. But actually we really don't. There's so much more that we don't know.
2: Kind of like the idea of applying the Dunning Kruger effect to us as a species. Sorry, it's interesting you never thought about that. But yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because there's so much we absolutely do not know. But as a species, we think we are we are we're unlocking the secrets of the universe. And it's like, no, we're not. No, we're not. (laughs) But so that's what that that I think you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head about the cosmic horror thing is hard, because horror where you've got like a shambling monster coming at you out of the darkness that's going to eat you is a very you know, obvious kind of horror the 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 consequence really of that yeah the consequence of it's getting you is very obvious it's going to eat me i will die you know whereas eldritch horrors is more yes it's that that your mind cracks under the pressure of knowing the truth the, you know the whatever the this,
2: knowing the, the, unknowable. The, of
1: the universe that nobody else will know is hard you know and i you know, I, I'm not even sure I would. No, I, I tried to touch on it in a few places, but you have you have to fall back on somewhat uh, tropey language to convey that point because, you know, it was his his mind broke the sheer noble horror of the thing, his mind snapped, and you're like, okay, that's we've we've seen that line a hundred times and so on, but I've 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 not seen many writers who've uh done it well. I mean there are um let's uh what's the let's see I'm just let me cast my mind back. Uh there's a, a book a friend of mine lent uh yeah Laird Barron that was it. It was a friend of mine gave me a book, uh, The Children of Old Leech. Uh it was a tribute to Laird Barron, a lot of stories by other authors in the either using some of his characters and what have you. And there was a, a bunch of stories in there that I was like that's cool because I'm, I'm not sure I know what's happened in this story, but I know I, sh- I shouldn't understand it, and I should be <laughs> kind of messed up by it by not knowing. And I think that's a very good way of handling it. And I've I've not really had a chance to dip back into that kind of storytelling or horror yet, because you know, certainly with League, we we want to keep the storytelling as accessible as we can. To Shadow so,
2: Islands are a little eldritch.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we get to use, certainly use the word, word eldritch a lot in the Shadow Isles. Um, I mean, we've certainly gone into the into some detail as to why, you know, the ruination happened and so on, the story behind that. I mean, some of it, at least, anyway. We we'll, we haven't properly, in the same way that we, we kind of knew what the horror series was about, but we didn't really until we dug deep and told bigger stories in it um but eldritch is one of these words that's, that's like arcane it's it's often thrown around as a a shorthand for something without mm. digging deep into what actually it means or what what does the writer intend by that word other than a, a shorthand for it's got glyphs written on it or <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit spooky and uh, I, I think I, I mean i i'm as guilty as anyone for using those words and i love those words but they're a shorthand for something and i i, I I'd love to take a story where there was um, a much more measured pace where you didn't have to have an explosion on every 10 pages where you could properly delve into, okay, why is this arcane? Why is this eldritch? What does that mean? Because I think that would be really, really interesting.
2: Yeah. So uh, I have so many avenues I want to explore there, but I feel like I've stepped on Ulrich's <laughs> toes. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the mic to you, Ulrich. <laughs>
0: So this is one of the things that's really interesting. Uh, this is the first time that the lost primarchs are mentioned, and <laughs> I think it's kind of funny is because after this, the other authors go, "Oh wait, we can talk about that," and then they start doing it. And then I've heard rumors. I don't know if this is true. That Games Workshop just okay, guys, knock it off. No more lost primarch stuff. You're done. What kind of made you go? I'm gonna stick some lost primarch stuff in here. Was that a conversation you guys had, or it just kind of felt like something fun to do?
1: Um, I mean it's. It, it was two. You had, we had two competing masters there in terms of the desire to do this. I mean, on the one hand, if if you find uh, an avenue that is unexplored, as a writer you want to explore it. I think, oh, nobody's gone down this road. I would like to go down this and see where it where it leads me. Um, and you know, mysteries are are there for a reason to intrigue, and they intrigue. The writers just as much as they do the readers. You know, we 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 all came to the the Horus Heresy after years of reading like Space Marine Codexes, where the second and the eleventh legions expunged, and there was literally nothing else. You you could find zero other things about it. Um, so that was as a writer, that's like, oh, this is fun. I mean, this is what what could this be? What could I come up with for why? What could be what sin? What event could be so egregious that not only are they just destroyed, but they are wiped from the books and nobody must ever talk about them ever again. So I certainly in the first few books, they were, you know, we were just having fun with it. We were like teasing the idea that actually, you know, that there is a central secret and it's buried in a safe, deep under games workshop in Nottingham. And only one person has the key to it sort of thing. Hmm um but you know we were just we were literally just having fun with it and coming up with cool suggestions is what it might be uh and it was certainly a topic that got thrown around the uh the heresy writers uh, the heresy office writers room what was it who were they what did they do and certainly we we teased a bunch of stuff that in like when the the, the scattering of the primarchs. Seen there was some stuff about it there. Uh, Prospero Burns has some uh, some nods to what might have happened and so on, but eventually it wasn't a sense of we, we were you know officially said no, no more. It was more a case of okay, we're just we're, we're eventually going to keep trying to top each other, and we're <laughs> eventually going to get to the point where either you have to spell it out and say it. Or you're just, people are just going to go, oh, come on, more of this teasing stuff? Come on, either give us an answer <laughs> or shut up. So we, we collectively came to the conclusion that we, if we kept going down this road very, very quickly, we were just going to have to give an answer definitively as to what was going on. And we realized that actually none of us wanted that. None of us wanted to actually say the, what our personal truth was of what it was because some mysteries are... are best left unexplored you know some mysteries are great for being like theory crafters for the for the fans for the readers because you want people to be discussing and talking about the book the story the ip and something that if you ever once you've come up with an answer to it saying ah well it was this then people are gonna go oh okay
0: cool (laughs) <laughs> it is interesting to see what the community's done with what you guys have written, and there's like three or four core theories like nope this is the accepted one if we piece all this together and it all just kind of came from just this little throwaway line in this book they're like wait a second mm-hmm. we can talk about this there there's they're actually saying that yeah. this might be
1: yeah absolutely I-, I mean you want people to talk about the thing and giving a little bit of a mystery is you know i i've throwaway line of you know for like for example uh there are no wolves and fenris there you go <laughs> run, run with the people um because again that that has generated
0: people are still
1: oceans that oceans of, of discussion online or at conventions and what have you uh you know what does it mean is it literal is it this is it that and you know, <laughs> and you know we you had an idea for some of the stuff some of it was like i think this is cool i think this will give The reader's uh, a mystery to chew on and, you know, see what they come up with. So eventually we we basically came to the point, the conclusion that we either, you know, either shit or get off the pot, one or the other. Mm. uh, And we realized we did not want to close that door to people's discussions and people's, you know, enjoyment of theorizing of what it might be.
2: Well, Oric, since I, I asked a number of questions, I'm going to give the next one to you as well. <laughs>
0: All right, so this is a fun one because if you ask most fans what the cause of the Horus heresy is, they kind of jokingly say, daddy issues. <laughs> but what do you think was Horus's primary reason for going, no, we're going to burn this sucker to the ground? I mean, was it ego? Was it just uh, the Emperor not telling him everything? Like, when you wrote this, in your mind, like, okay, what is your example of this is why he
1: did this again that's a that's a complex layered question because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of simple answers you give to that you know like ego daddy issues and so on and they're all to an extent true but I like I think like with characters and as beings as larger than life and as numinous as the primarchs are A lot of those emotions are they're kind of they're almost too petty for them to to engage with at that level you know to 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 burn the imperium to the ground because daddy didn't tell me this feels weak as a a reason I think every 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 (laughs) one of them I think is like a a one percent of a reason and you add them all up and eventually you get to a tipping point so there's some of it was you know layers of insecurity there was you know this because like I say there's a lot of tragedy involved in this there's a lot of uh similarities to like paradise lost and so on the idea i mean like the cause the, the imperium was never meant for the primarchs and the space marines they were never going to be the inheritors of this they were the ones who were going to conquer it for humanity. And they were, I think, at some level, they were, that resentment set in that, wait a minute, we are the ones shedding blood for this. We are the ones dying on the front lines. We are conquering it, and we are never going to reap the benefit of it. It will never be ours was part of it. It was a big part of it. And the fear that a lot of uh, you know soldiers back in... You know, ancient times might have had of what becomes of this, what becomes of the warrior when the war is done, because they they had no other purpose really. You know, that Magnus, not Magnus, Araman touches on this in A Thousand Suns when he talks to Lemuel that some of the some of the Space Marines look at that this will be war forevermore, and Magnus and the Araman and the Suns are like, look ridiculous. Of course, it won't be. Once we get to the edge of the galaxy and we've driven chaos or driven Xenos back and we've established the shining city on the hill for humanity, we're done. You know, we we are going to be the soldiers on the wall at best. That's what we're going to be. So if we want to exist in this new world, we need to find a new mission. We need to find new purpose. We need to find things that will give us meaning and purpose in this new world. Um... And I think Horus, at that point, didn't see purpose for himself. He didn't know what he was going to be doing, and he he was aware of what had happened to the Thunder Warriors, the you know the earliest soldiers mm-hmm. who fought to conquer Earth uh, for the Emperor back in this, uh, the Age of Strife, uh, or the Age of Unity, rather I should say. Um, he knew that he knew that they had been essentially cast aside. You know, their their work was done. I do not need you anymore. So there's that push and pull between I love you, father, and I love you, son, to the idea of, wait a minute, are we actually just the latest tools he needs to do this job? Because the emperor's been alive for, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years. So he's probably seen and used and discarded hundreds of thousands of people and warriors and soldiers over the years. And I think some of... That was creeping. Well, that was what was let in the door in False Gods, because um, I I always think of oh, the Horus turning in this book isn't uh He doesn't turn in this book. He doesn't immediately, He's not a traitor at this point. The the there's a crack been opened in his soul, and at that point, you know it's you know that the, the a tiny trickle of water can eventually over time split the rock that's kind of where Horus is at, at the beginning he's just had that first trickle of water starting to run down through his soul that is eventually going to split him open which is why even like in in book three and book four and five to some extent uh up, well, at least up until the the battle of Istvan, um there's still traces of the noble Horus left inside because he's not 100 percent gone end of false gods he's not 100 percent. i'm now team evil he is still very much at war with himself at this point, you know, and chaos is whispering to him all the time since then of all the, the, the insecurities you're going to be cast aside you're no you're not going to be useful, you're not actually his beloved son, you're just a tool that he's going to use until that tool is no longer needed it's uh i mean this is going to sound ridiculous, and so on, but bear with me, but one hmm. of the one of the metaphors. For this that I had, in essentially I had in my mind as a sort of thematic thing was uh, *Toy Story*. Oh, uh, ah, yeah. *Toy Story* three when the the toys when Andy's growing up, and they're in the they're in the cabinet, not the cabinet, they're in the box, and they desperately want to be have purpose. They desperately want to be played with, and they try everything they can to get his attention, but none of it works because the Andy they were being played with. Is not the Andy who who exists now. He's he's grown up, obviously. So, you know, the the similarities. I'm stretching that metaphor. You no, know, that's actually there, perfect. I like
2: yeah, I don't think you're but stretching. I think it makes sense.
1: It was very much like, we're gonna we're gonna be obsolete soon, and I don't want that because Horus is very much, you know, I like to think that the Primarchs are all embodiments of a singular characteristic of the Emperor. They were elements of him distilled into. Perfect moments of that thing, but Horus was very much like almost like a, a representation of the emperor's emperorness. <laughs> So that, that, that yes. idea of being the guy in charge that, that idea of being the one who would solve all the problems, who would fix everything, and when suddenly that's taken away from you. What do you have left? Who are you um and, you know, some of it, some of it obviously was built on lies because the, the, when he's, when Horus is having his uh, vision quest thing, the, the chaos shows him a vision of the future, you know, where there's all the, the statues there and none of them are of him. And, you know, Horus is a ambitious, very ambitious man as well. So the idea that he would be snubbed, that he and others would not be recognized is like, wait a minute, why, why am I not there? I'm, well, I'm the war master for God's sake, and but the the irony of that is, of course, that's a his, that's a future that he will create by turning evil, by trying to burn everything down. Is why there's no statues of him. Not, but of course, that's the 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 heart of every great lie is having a kernel of the truth in it, and that yeah. that you know, along with all these other one percent here, one percent there, <clears throat> all of them are the, the the breaking point eventually for Horus that is like. They, they eventually came to the point where, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to be obsolete. I'm not going to let myself be cast aside. I will not suffer the fate of all those who have come before me. I will be the different
2: one. Yeah, it's funny because that, 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 that scene with the statues also has, it's right around what is one of my top three favorite lines in the book. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but where Horace says something like, he realizes with guilt how much the adoration of others is important to him. I was like, that's there's a lot going on in that sentence that I love, <laughs> so
1: yeah. I mean, we all want to feel valued, we all want to feel that our contribution matters, that we are valued. And when, at that point, when he felt none of that, he felt less than that, he, he felt the you know, 100% the opposite direction that hurt. And you know, I've, it's very unwise to hurt a very prideful person.
2: So we've been talking about, uh, you know, writing and the very, various, like, authorial ship. I'm just curious before, because I don't know how, how much longer we got, Ulrich, but uh, when it takes some time, I'm curious about your experience with the actual tabletop game, you know, with <laughs> Warhammer 40K itself. You mentioned earlier uh, playing Kill Team with your son. I assume you probably played, you know, pretty young, you know, hence why you're reading, like, ads and White Dwarf stuff. So I'm just curious what your, how you describe your experience with the tabletop game itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I've been—I mean, I've been playing for a lot. I mean, I played Warhammer first of all back the third edition Warhammer, the hardback orange book. Um, I mean, I came to that through role playing because I was a, like I said, I was a big, was and remain a big role play guy, and I ran a whole bunch of D and D campaigns, and my my ambition <clears throat> for those stories uh, rapidly outstripped what uh what RPG systems back then could do. You know, I wanted, you know, Fate of Nations, 100,000 warriors on every side, battles, and, you know, you know, you couldn't do that in a role-playing system. You had to, you know, you had to muddy the water somewhat and just sort of say, oh, there's thousands of people around you heaving of pikes and spears, and you would run little combats, you know, within the scale of this as, as you fight your way through the battle, these two guys come out and you have to fight them and so on. But that, that always felt... Felt like a little bit cheating, in some ways. Hmm. So I wanted a way to take the scale of what I wanted to do and actually have the players and represented on that. So that, so I moved on to we got the AD and D battle system and we played that for a bit until <clears throat> I walked into the Games Workshop and I was like, oh, "What's this all about then?" Um And I did a, a demo of Third Ed Warhammer and it was like, "Oh yes, this this is the stuff." Uh, played some of that. And then Rogue Trader came out. We played a couple of games of that. And thought, oh yeah, this this might go somewhere, maybe all right. Um played a bunch of that, and then very quickly uh 40k became our go-to game completely. Um and I you know, I, I started writing a whole bunch of stories for oh, yeah, why are we fighting this game and what are the repercussions of this game that can lead into the next one, and so on. So we pl- we played a ton of uh 40k. And uh, my mum and dad's back room, I think that was my games room. So we played a lot of 40K there. We played some Epic, which I also liked because that, that felt, again, much more grandiose in its scale, you know, Epic, if you will. Um, hmm. And that, that, was, that was really it for a while. And then, you know, when I went to university, uh, I didn't play nearly as much. Um, but I still, you know, I still wrote stories about it, still read White Dwarf every month and so on. But then of kind of got back into it again in a big way sort of uh, when I got to about 19 or so, playing it a lot there. Uh, and then, obviously, when I went to Games Workshop, we were playing a lot of well, all the games there. Lord of the Rings, Warhammer, 40k and so on, Apocalypse and so on. Um, I mean, these days, I, I, I don't I don't play as much of 40k as I would like to. Because uh, just this, the scale and the time is just not there anymore Um, which is why i love playing like skirmish games like kill team and we play a lot we play a lot of board games as well you know we've got we evan and i play a lot of death may die and we all play like spartacus the board game or uh, we got hate and i I have a terrible kickstarter habit (laughs) i have
2: have
1: a, a ton of games which i've got which i haven't had a chance to play yet um, but we played, Evan and I are playing a lot of kill team because he, you know, we've, we've moved models. He's he's 10 now. And for the first uh, like six years of his life, we lived uh, like four or five miles from Warhammer World. We lived in Nottingham. Uh, so, his, and his swimming lessons when he was a kid were at a swimming pool, literally 100 yards from Games Workshop HQ.
0: Hmm.
1: So, so, we would, you know, every Saturday we'd have his swimming lessons and we'd, Pop over to Games Workshop, and we'd have a cookie and a, and a coffee and a milk or whatever. And so he, you know, from his from the earliest age, him and his wee sister have been surrounded by models and terrain and all the paraphernalia of the Games Workshop. And you know, he was, like, oh man, can I have some miniatures? Can we play some models and so on? So we, you know, we'd. Chuck a bunch of dice around, move some models around the table, not playing with any rules or anything, just, you know, imparting yeah. the fun of the thing before. Like, actually, uh, sorry, Mr. Four-Year-Old, I think you'll find that's only movement. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, didn't, I, didn't we, I, sorry.
2: Oh, no, sorry. No, it's just, we, we just had, uh, yesterday we recorded with a, a guest who's a preschool teacher, and he was telling us about a term called uh, scaffolding, where you uh. take, yeah, where you take a, a you know a youth and you basically boost them up to do a thing they couldn't otherwise do, but to get them into the mindset of of doing it. And that's what it sounds like to me. That's exactly,
1: and I, I do that when with his painting with his gaming. You know, I'll, I'll let him do things or explain. Oh, maybe this or he try do this thing and think about that. And so yeah, we, we play we play kill team usually once every couple of weeks. Uh, we'll play a board game in the intervening. Uh, week and we'll get some, get sister in to play some of them as well. But yeah, it's kill. I mean, I, I over, over the Christmas break, just you know, just gone, I, I bought and painted up and made a shed load of terrain because mm-hmm. I was always, I mean, I most of my armies had been sat in the garage for a while, and then I got some new shells for my office, bought a bunch of terrain because Evan had he'd been showing a, a lot more interest in the game, so I was like, right, let's get let's do this. so I spent our entire, almost my entire Christmas break, just painting buildings and refineries and fans and walkways and rubble and craters and stuff like that. So, but every yeah, basically every every couple of weeks we'll get a game out, get the play mats out on the dining room table, and we'll des- design a little. You know, I'll usually get him to dev- design the, the scenario in terms of, you know, we'll, we'll play like. One of the ones at the kill team book, but I'll get him to make up the narrative of it, the storytelling of mm-hmm. it. Like, Why are we here? What we're we doing, and so on. Uh, so he, he just, you know, he feels more, you know, invested in what the story is because it's his story we're playing, and he loves that. So it's mostly kill team we play just now. Although I've, I've got, uh, I bought the, I've got the Soulbound, uh, what you call it, the Age of Sigmar box set, and I'm slowly painting up some uh, Stormcast and some Night Haunts to give that a try.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm playing a lot of Kill kill Team myself, because Kill Team's such a great gateway. I, I've been using it to get uh, about, so far, four of my best friends in my town who were not into Warhammer at all, and now it's like, hey, he just got a Harlequin army. Hey, he just got an Imp Guard army, and I'm sitting here with my, my fingers like, yes, excellent.
1: <laughs> One of us. One of us.
2: I, I, have, I have read, because you strike me as the... T- especially considering the you you... Yeah, you know the writer stuff that you've probably collected armies for for like everything. I have read that uh, Necron and Tau were specific, mm-hmm. or what I see uh, you know reference online. Is that is that correct? <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, I mean the, I mean one of the sort of mantras we had when I mean I, I worked in the design studio from uh, two thousand to summer twenty two thousand six. Um, you know writing codexes and white dwarf stuff and what have you and our, our mantra was always like if you're working in an army book codex or what have you and you're not collecting an army by the end of it something's gone wrong <laughs>
2: that <laughs> makes sense yeah
1: yeah because you're like ah, i don't really feel these guys and it's like well what do you, how do you expect anyone who reads this to go out and want and spend you know a ton of cash on a model or the, the armies and so on so yeah i mean one of the first i mean the the first codex I worked on it in the design studio was the Tau, uh, you know, the first Tau Codex. So yeah, I have a, a, a fully fledged Virela Firecast army for that. Uh the Necron Codex was the one I wrote with uh Phil Kelly and Andy Chambers. And that was that was the third ed one when they were very much the you know, the faceless, silent horde of, you know, zombies in space kind of thing. Which you know, they they remain to me that that's that's my necrons. They're they're the ones that I like the most. You know, I'm I'm not, I don't tend to have. If, if ever I write necrons, I don't tend to have them. You know, twirling their moustaches and <laughs> being all Mr. stingley Evil and their dark cloak and top hat kind of thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I you know we did the the witch hunters and demon hunters codexes. So I've got little warbands for both of them. I've got my inquisitor warband um i've got my empire army which is again one of the, it's the one of the first and the last army, uh, army books i worked on when i was there that was the last that was the last army book i wrote before i left and i've got my i've got black templars kill team yeah pretty much and i've i've I have a, a wide variety of, of models some very eclectic some exactly what you'd expect And of course i have a ultramarines fourth company army
2: uh, I, I will tell you just because the the uh, A Thousand Suns book that so far my Kiltim experience is a lot of how do I handle the Thousand Suns? Yeah. I don't know how to handle it.
1: <laughs> no, they're the, to be fair, they're ones I don't have miniatures of, and largely that is because I looked at the models and was like, I could never, in a million years, paint these in any way that would not make them look like I had chopped all my fingers off and
2: <laughs> my eyes
1: out before I'd started.
2: Yeah, no, I I literally brought it up because I know that the book uh, you're involved and, in, you know, it's just been something that I've been stressing because so many mortal wounds. Anyway. <laughs> oh,
1: yes. Although, I mean, because now that I've I've got my, I've got my painting set up just the way I like, you know, it's got proper, like, I spoke to Nick Baton in the design studio, just, you know, while ago said hey guys what 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 lights have you got there for painting so i got myself one of them and that's like oh my god i can i can see the models i can see the colors now why did i not do this years back (laughs)
0: yeah i was thinking about that that might be a good idea and
1: i i got pair of like cheapy uh ten dollar like reading glasses out of bed bath and beyond for when i'm doing the up close work and it's like oh wow (laughs) you know the clarity i can see here just because it's like having a Big like pair of magnifying glasses stuck to your <laughs> eyeball.
2: So, I, oh, yeah, I, I, mean, I can see. I can
1: paint. I can see fine normally because I had laser eye surgery years back. But up close, you know, when I've got a model like four inches from my face, it's like, yeah, I'm going to need something for that <laughs> just so I can see what I'm doing. And and my painting has, you know, and then contrast paints has been a revelation for me. That's knocked my painting game up to the next level. I mean, I'm still. You know, I'm, I'm competent at best as a painter, but, you know, for me, that's a huge improvement.
2: <laughs> as someone who's only just going to get... I haven't even started painting my models yet. I'm still... I just went out and bought primer today. So it's like, you know, confidence.
1: <laughs> it's... Yeah. I mean, it, at the end of the day, what I learned was the best trick for me was not comparing what I was doing to other people. You know, I wanted to learn yeah. from them. I wanted I've to I've heard inspire. that about
2: art in general.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's the it's trap it's so easy to fall into well, i'm not as good as that person therefore i will never be good and what i do isn't good in and of itself I was like no that's rubbish you know aspire to be that good learn from the better person but don't value your work any less just because it's not as good as that because hey everybody started somewhere
2: yeah so i, I think we probably need to wrap up here pretty soon but all right i'd imagine we have at least time for one more question from you
0: yeah uh this one's kind of interesting because you've written codexes so i kind of wonder how that compares to writing the horse heresy because you're essentially writing or filling in the gaps of the history of 40k okay. like this is this is stuff that we we had an outline but you get to go and these are the people that and this is what they looked like and this is how they acted and here's a specific event that didn't exist now but now is just stamped part of history of 40k
1: Okay. Uh, so what was the question there? Yeah, I was to say, uh, just, I don't think you phrased oh, the question. <laughs>
0: but uh, what does that feel like? You know, just being able to say, I got to write not only 40K history, but one of the keystones of the history of 40K.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's exactly what you would expect in some ways, because it's, it's like, like anyone who sets something down creatively, you, 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 want, you want to make an impact on the, the people who play it or read it or look at it um you want to make them you want them to take away an emotion from that and that's always the the thing that drives me i mean i when you're looking at a codex when you're looking at an army book the the feel you want from somebody to take away from that's very different from what you want to take away from a novel i mean you want when somebody looks at a codex they want to feel inspired by the the thing that you have done because you want them to you want to pick up and play this army you want them to feel like this speaks to me i can play these people on the tabletop and it is it says something about me that this is an army i have chosen uh and there's an act there's a there's a contract there between you and the the player because you're you're creating something that they want to play and they're running with it they're going to do things with it that maybe you didn't expect and you you're creating something for them to have fun with and be active with, uh, when you're writing a book, it's there's an element of, you know, that the the, the, right, the reader is the passive participant in this process, but again, there's that contract that you're establishing at the beginning of this that they're picking up your book and you're saying, pick up my book and I will entertain you, I will inspire you, I will speak to your emotions, I will teach you something, you will become We will explore topics that you might not have thought you could explore through science fiction or fantasy, which is, you know, always a great lens for things you want to say through a medium of, you know, dragons and wizards or space goblins or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Um, So you can talk more to the emotion directly of a a, a reader through the book because you can... make them fall in love with your characters you make them hate them with a passion you can make them cry when somebody you know fails and dies or falls over and then punch the air when they get back up again and so on and I think that's that's the things we remember about stories how we felt about a certain thing when we finished it you know and because obviously that's that's what drives you back you know like when you've read a book more than once you don't go back again for the surprise of it you don't go back for the unraveling of the story you go back for the emotion of it you go back to feel what you felt the last time and there's, there's a book one of my favorite books is a book called Bridge of Birds by Barry Hewitt and it's it's a very thin book but it, it reminds me every time I read it of why I love fantasy fiction it reminds me every time why I love seeing beautiful things in books because the ending of that book is just one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. And it makes me cry every time I read it. And it's one I read every year and it's, I go back to it not to be surprised by the story, although there are certain parts with which every time I read it, I, I take something different away from it. Um, but that's what I want people to, you know, and it's a lofty goal and we don't always succeed in what we set out to do with the because You always have an idea of, okay, this is what I want. To achieve over the course of the writing of this book, and sometimes you do it, and sometimes you don't, and sometimes what you want to do with the book shifts as you're writing it. But I want people to come away moved in some way, whether it's, oh man, I hated this guy at the end of it. I (laughs) I just wanted to kill him, you know. Cough, cough,
0: Erebus. Erebus. Yep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or I want, you know, I felt like when I finished *Horace Rising*, I felt just achingly sad for Horus Mm
0: -hmm.
1: not just Mm -hmm. because if I knew what I was going to do to him and what (laughs) happens to him but just that's that scene at the end when they're fighting the Interrex and he looks up Mm -hmm. in the skies and he's like why why did you make me like this and why did we fail and because he's like he he sees and he feels all the things that could have been in that moment and now are not and that just made Mm -hmm. me feel desperately sad for him and that's that's not the the big takeaway I took from that book, but it was one of the most powerful moments in that, that you weren't just going away going, yeah, Horus is a bastard and I hate him and he's evil. <laughs> you, you you felt something really profoundly moving about him and knowing what was coming for him, that made it all the worse. So you, you want readers to feel something. And that's that's why I feel is the most important distinction between writing a book and writing an army book, because they're... they're two very different things that have very different purposes going into them
2: all right well you know we, we could literally ask you questions till the end of time i think yeah, sure and I have, chat, uh, all yeah and i have many more but i think uh, about now is time where we say first of all we again thank you very much for coming on and, and talking to us it's been wonderful
1: yeah. yeah absolute pleasure I've thoroughly enjoyed it guys
2: yeah, and at this point, we are going to give the microphone and the stand to you so you can plug whatever you want to plug, whatever you're involved in.
1: Uh, let's see, what have we got now? Um, well, at the moment, I'm, I'm I'm kind of like in a bit of a nomadic place, trying my hand at different formats of things, trying my hand at sort of screenwriting, seeing if I can crack the, the nuances of a of a screenplay. Uh, hmm. At the moment, they've got things like, well, The Sons of the Celenar could that's uh, one of the books in the Siege of Terror. That might be nice if you could pick that up. And we've got the upcoming Fury of Magnus also in the, the Siege of Terror arc. And I, I that's one I'm I wrote that quite some time ago now, but what the vagaries of planning for the Siege of Terra and the special edition y type lead times. Uh it's it's one I'm particularly I'm quite I'm very proud of that one because I think it everything we just talked about about the emotions that we're going the, the readers are gonna take away that are gonna either have them, you know, turning up at my door with pitchforks and torches <laughs> uh, or like sobbing in the aisles, I think is gonna be I think it's gonna be great. I can't wait to see what people make of that one.
0: I am excited for it. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well then uh Ulrich, you wanna take us out? Yeah, uh once again we'd like to thank Mr. Graham McNeil for coming on and talking with us. Uh, this has been a really cool experience both just in reading the books and being able to talk to you, the author, about it and some great insight. And to all our listeners, we hope you enjoyed. And next week we will be starting Galaxy in Flames. Bye.
1: Cheerio. See you later.